guys, we're going to do something a little different today. Today I'm going to sit down with Anuj Rajkumar, rock aficionado and creator of The Legends of Music on Instagram. We're going to deep dive into the California sound, everything from surf rock to folk rock to sunshine pop to the psychedelic San Francisco scene. We're going to talk about the history, the music that moved us, and our very different backgrounds. Growing up on the beaches of LA versus growing up across the world in Dubai. So this is another one for those who love rock history, particularly all that was happening in California from the early 60s to the early 70s. So let's get started. Okay, so one thing I love about Instagram are the connections you make and the unique opportunities it provides. And one such opportunity is this one. So I am sitting here with Anuj Rajkumar, creator of the Instagram page, Legends of Music. Hello. (laughs) Hello, Anuj. Thanks for coming on. So this page of yours is incredible on a number of levels. So you have a true passion for music, an ear for music. I mean, you're able to articulate that beautifully on your page. And that's why you have a massive following that includes some of the biggest celebrities and musicians today. So what's even more interesting, though, is that the music you so intimately discuss, most of it was created well before your time. And you live in Dubai, where the music may not have been as popular, or maybe definitely not among your peer group, right? That is correct. Yes, I was born in 1996, long before any of this was made. And <laughs> a year after me. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's it's just I I've always been blessed with a vivid imagination. So every time I listen to, like, say a song from 1966, I can imagine people sitting in a room together taking LSD. Or I can imagine, like, my brain goes back in time and, like, tries to picture what's happening. And it's just, like, how I interpret the music. Everyone Mm -hmm. has their own way of, like, you know, processing the sounds they're listening. And this was mine. So I just tried to translate that into, you know, posts that went on Instagram. Yeah, well, you did a beautiful job. And um, I think at this point, it's about 80,000 followers strong. But... That is part of the reason why I was so excited when you came to me and said, you know what, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about, you know, the evolution of the California sound in the 60s. And let's highlight bands like the Beach Boys and Buffalo Springfield and their role in its evolution. Because the California sound and, you know, I've talked about it on a previous episode. It's complex. It's almost like there's a number of genres within the sound. So I'm excited to get into that today. So let's start with this California sound. I mean, this is, when you think of the California sound, you think of sunny optimism. I think you think of, you know, tanned bodies and beaches and surfboards. But, you know, let's let's dive in a little bit more because it's very nuanced. It definitely is. Um, The reason I chose this topic to talk about out of everything else was because I, um, my, my personal hero of all time is Neil Young. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm like the song Mr. Soul. When I heard that, my world changed. It is that song is on my top ten list of like my ten favorite songs of all time. Mm-hmm. So when I, so when when I heard the that and the Buffalo Springfield sound, like I was very intrigued by what is the California sound because everything up until that point that I'd heard of California was very laid back, 
you know it was just this nice something like relaxing that you could listen to when given my limited knowledge of the area at the time mm-hmm. I, i was talking about like crosby stills nash um uh, judy collins and you know like so many other artists were just so laid back and nice to listen to and very refreshing but then suddenly i was introduced to buffalo springfield and i was like this doesn't sound like anything that i know of mm-hmm. so what like what's like what's happening here i want i want to know more about this the more i dove into that the more i found out this entire back history of some songs that i've heard but i never knew the back story to them like i was um discovering names left right and center like like the birds david crosby jan and dean and like suddenly this whole sound came together as a whole and i was like this is something really worth talking about so mm-hmm. hence why i chose it it definitely is and you know the irony of you talking about neil young is that he's canadian but then he comes down to los it angeles is. and forms one of the quintessential bands one that's essential to the california sound and you're right when you talk about the california sound it starts pretty much in the late 50s you know everything that we're thinking of um encapsulating the the california sound the late 50s really early 60s with the onset of this surf music but then as you talked about you have everything that was happening in southern california from Laurel Canyon Sunset Strip then on up to Northern California as well in the San Francisco scene the psychedelic sound Hate Ashbury all of that comes together to encapsulate the California sound So the early 60s was you know it was surfing It was the hot rod culture. It was this innocence that you found in those Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello movies. I mean, what they were selling essentially was sex. It was innocent sex and it caught on like wildfire across the whole country. Every teenager was buying into it. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, everything like you mentioned was all about youth culture and how great that was. And fun fact, uh, when transistor radios came out that were battery operated, record labels and bands suddenly had this new sound which was like their ideal target market is everybody who goes to the beach so why not let's make music that appeals to people who are on the beach and that's how essentially how surf rock was born so it was all about trying to find the style of music that appealed to people who went to the beach and what you have is the birth of surf rock that was led by one man and his name was Dick Dale mhm Dick Dale with with Miss Rulu and Let's go tripping. So what you have essentially is a technological development put forward by Fender the guitar company where they produced amplifiers that had a re- a reverb sound which allowed your guitar to sound like it was a wave on a beach. And that was what caused a massive revolution where everybody was like surf music's the craze and this is this is what I want. Well, and not to mention Dick Dale was also a surfer. So, you know, the way he played the guitar was almost like the experience he was having while being in the wave, while actually on that surfboard, that tick 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 that staccato type yeah. playing was essentially translating that surfing experience into music. And it did. It caught on like wildfire with all these droves of surfers that were coming to the beaches in the early 60s, you know, especially Southern California region. They're surfing all day. What are they doing at night? I mean, they're going to go to the clubs. They're going to go to the bars. They're going to listen to these bands play. I mean, it was almost like this natural progression. You know, Dick Dale saw all of that. 
And then you had obviously a lot of other, I don't want to say imitations, but a lot of other similar groups. Um, you had the Surfaris come out, um, the Chantes, the Ventures. They were coming from all over the country. And that really, that 61 to 63 time, that was the apex of the surf sound. Yeah. But what really started it were the Beach Boys. And I think exactly. even though it's a song that's not played as much, um, when six, 61's Surfing came out, I mean, I think that was the real genesis of the sound and the craze and the overall pervasive mentality of what it meant to be in Southern California. Yeah. And not, and not just uh, like, you know, to be a Southern California, it's more like to be a beach boy. Mm-hmm. Like essentially it's the name of the band. Like what you are is you're going to the beach. It's like a time capsule that takes you back where you can, you know, enjoy sunshine in all of its glory. And at the mm-hmm. same time, all the added benefits that come with it, the mm-hmm. beach, the women, the music. So it was surf rock was was just this more pop induced rock and roll sound that was taken from the 50s and had all these little tiny bits and pieces of it and turned it into something, you know, much different. Very true. And you know, what's funny is when you look back on it, many called it this California myth. But that wasn't entirely true because you did come to California. You got a glimpse of, you know, what the Beach Boys and other surf bands represented to their fans. This carefree outdoors lifestyle, sunshine, sand, cruising up Highway 1. Well, that was all there. That all existed. But what was interesting was that there was something mythological to it. And the Beach Boys were certainly mythological. None of them surfed when they hit it big. Dennis learned to surf and he became the embodiment of that, you know, suntan surf boy that, you know, all the girls were crazy over. But actually, even uh, Barney Hoskins wrote in his book, Waiting for the Sun, uh, A Rock and Roll History of Los Angeles. He wrote that it's one of the great ironies of Californian pop that its sunniest teen anthems from surfing to California girls were written by a gawky, introspective geek who couldn't relate to the opposite sex. That was Brian Wilson. So the Beach Boys were as much as an illusion as anything else in Hollywood. It's like, on one end, you can think of it as the pop gimmick made to sell records. But in reality, what you said is true, is that they were, like, Brian Wilson is an introspective geek, but yet he managed to cause a revolution records like these and i actually have two quotes over here one is from brian wilson on the california myth and the second is former beach boy al jardine talking about the complete opposite of how the beach culture is not just a myth it's something that they lived in the 60s so brian wilson says it's not just the surfing it's the outdoors and cars and sunshine it's the society of california it is the way of california We didn't just go to the beach, we lived it. That culture was real. And here's what Al Jardine had to say about it. He said, it's not entirely a myth. There are still some elements that are certainly true, especially for a first time observer. But to be able to come here and drive on that coast on route one, you experience the water, the animals and the sea life, the whole thing, it's really magical. It really is. And coming from a sunny state myself, I can understand what both of them mean when they say, you know, California is all about the sunshine, the woman. And it was. I I grew up, um, you know, in Los Angeles on the beach. 
and our weekends were spent on the beach. Uh, all recreation was on the beach. You played beach volleyball. You watched your boyfriend surf. You had bonfires. That's what you did. And I feel incredibly lucky to have grown up there. Um, I grew up probably just a few miles away from Hawthorne, where the Beach Boys grew up. But I think it reached mythological status with the Beach Boys, with the advertisers that were promoting that image so heavily um, and perpetuated by the music and Hollywood. I just feel like, like for someone who's never been to the state of California, ironically enough, that all of this that we're talking about is like sort of set in stone, like a time capsule, you know, like how any, any, any hardcore Beatles fan will make that one pilgrimage to Abbey Road Studios and walk that famous crosswalk. So just like that, this is what the Beach Boys, this is what any Beach Boys fan would do. We'd come down to California and you would see the sunshine and try to take it all in from their perspective. And I highly, highly, highly think that if I, when I come down to California and I walk down any beach, I'm definitely going to have the Beach Boys music running through my head. <laughs> like I, As I, you I, 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 <laughs> I, most certainly I'm going to be humming the tune of Surf in USA, 100%. <laughs> and, and definitely a bunch of other songs, yeah. Yeah. No, I think yeah. so. And, you know, I mean, but look, they were a special band, not just because they defined the California surf sound, but because they also transcended it. They moved beyond the apex of it in 1963. And I think with the onset of the Beatles popularity in 1964, Beatles really reaching global status in 1964, instead of fading out, that propelled the Beach Boys, specifically Brian Wilson, forward in terms of his artistry, in terms of producing, in terms of writing these songs in every way. So he is a complex character. The band is an interesting one for so many reasons. The way I see it, that whole culture is very correlated, you know, where it's not just the band who's experiencing at the same time. It's other artists who are also, in, you know, in, in the area, in the vicinity. And that's, and for example, Jan and Dean, look at how much influence they had on the Beach Boys and look at how much influence Beach Boys had on them. Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost like saying without Jan and Dean, there would be no Beach Boys. And without the Beach Boys, there would be no Jan and Dean. So like the way I see it, it's like very, you know, it's like an environment where everybody's, sort of experiencing the same thing and they're experiencing, they're expressing their emotions through the mm -hmm. music. For example, uh, take the album Beach Boys Party. You know, so I found this to be extremely interesting is that when the Beach Boys were making this album, their record label was pressuring them, you know, you got to make an album, you got to have a hit and just to throw their label away, and you know, give them something to work with for a while and keep them quiet. They made this album. So originally, it was just supposed to be an album of dull songs, and it, it, it was just like you know, we're just going to give you this album. It, it doesn't matter if it doesn't have any hits on it. And in the same recording studio where they were making this, Jan and Dean were making an album, and they took a break and walked into the Beach Boy studio, and the Beach Boys asked them to sing on a silly song called Barbara Ann. <laughs> and and in the end, the what 
the contributions they made to Barbara Ann ended up, you know, making the song the legend that it is today. Oh, that's so, yeah. great. So that's it's like such a very, great story. Yeah. So it's like this core, you know, it's like this environment where everybody is experiencing all of this together mm-hmm. and they're expressing it in the music. And that's what makes the whole California sound such a great thing. The collaboration. Right. Yeah. Right. But Brian Wilson had a side to him that was more introspective. He played a number of hits that appealed to the beach fantasies of teenagers, but you know, a more poignant reality, I think, came through when he would write songs like In My Room. Um, that song itself had undertones of this agoraphobia and self-absorption that would inform a lot of his later songs. So what I have here is a quote by Brian Wilson, which was mentioned by him in an interview in around 19, late 1964, where he's saying that Basically, this is the end of surf music. We've taken it as far as we can with our records. We don't know where else we can go with it. the harmonies. We've used the harmonies. We've used the guitars. We've tried different production styles. And we don't know where to go from here. So it's time to start something new. And I can definitely see him looking outside of California, seeing what others are doing, like you know, paying attention to the radio, paying attention to the interviews that are published in the magazines and seeing that, you know, there's so much more to music than just surf music. Now, you know, like, it's like now he's coming into his element as the Brian Wilson we all know. You know, now he's starting to work his brain into making those introspective songs and, you know, like being more of a producer than mm-hmm. the art, the artist that he was. Right. So enter Pet Sounds. And obviously it's, is it just goes to show that how much he was influenced by the Beatles. I, funny enough, I have a book over here, which I often refer to, that talks about how important Revolver, the Revolver album by the Beatles was, and how that was the album that gave Brian Wilson a panic attack, saying that, you know, like, it... it it just it just like goes to show anybody who pays attention to the 60s suddenly realized that in like at the birth of the psychedelic period there was this sound that everybody was running towards which was a mix of the like you know the band's early days where you're a live band to the middle period where you're a studio band and you're trying to find that sound that influenced everybody and revolver gave him a panic attack because he was trying to search for the Beach Boys' next musical direction. And the Beatles had it. They had they had the sound he was looking for. Revolver and uh, the Beatles single Strawberry Fields Forever and mm-hmm. Penny Lane. Both those pieces of music in a, was an element that, you know, contributed to his mental health, mm-hmm. like the fall in his mental health. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about... 1965, a very pivotal year in the California sound as things were starting to shift. Surf music had seen its day, and now we were really experiencing an influx of the folk scene coming from New York out to L.A. to try their hand at fame. When you think of the California sound around 1965, this was a sound that essentially evolved to reflect a more uh, mature worldview. 
So no cars, no surfing, no tan bodies on the beaches. It was more about social consciousness. It was more about political awareness, you know, and things were also changing in Southern California, specifically around the Sunset Strip. You know, what had initially been um, this mecca for Hollywood clubs and restaurants and really, you know, a C and B scene type, you know, environment, it was now falling way to coffee houses and jazz clubs, things that were much more teen friendly and attracted a more bohemian vibe. So as the scene changed, a lot of these clubs, restaurants and establishments that couldn't make it gave way to clubs like Pandora's Box, The Sea Witch, The Trip, Its Boss. And it was this fertile ground for a lot of these musicians to try their hand at fame or just play, you know? So definitely what you mentioned was a game changer. However, I I like to think that moving into that era of music, there was like one critical element that, you know, that was sort of amplified by surf culture, but forgotten. And that was rock and roll. Instead of people, you know, suddenly chasing music for other people, now they're playing it for themselves. Like, you know, you're no longer wanting to please the women or, you know, talk about things that are commercial. Now you want to like, you know, start talking about music yourself for yourself. So, you know, you have... Um, say say the birds for example when they released their debut album turn 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 it was you know it, it was such a big thing then for a band to you know like to bring a rock into folk like mm-hmm. this like this although what this happened around the same time bob dylan was you know going rock in new york yes you mentioned bob dylan and you know him plugging in his guitar in 1965 at the Newport Folk Festival, I really do think was inspired by listening to the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, and going electric with that. Definitely. Nobody knows what and what really inspired Bob Dylan to go electric, as everybody always has a theory. But yes, the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. And I have this uh, quote from Roger. I'm going to read it out. It says, it was a standard folk song by that time, but I played it and it came out rock and roll because that's what I was programmed to do like a computer. I couldn't do it as it was traditionally. It came out with that samba beat and we thought it would make a good single. So when the birds recorded it, they recorded about 78 takes for the song that was spread over five days of recording. And that's how they got their signature folk rock sound. By and accident. that song, I mean, skyrocketed. It went to number one. And it went to number one three months before Dylan plugged in his guitar at the Newport Folk Festival. So I'm that not saying, correct. again, that was the reason he did it, but I'm sure it was one of the reasons. Dylan was progressive. Dylan is progressive. You know, he saw where the sound was going. It was it was moving even, from folk to folk rock, and obviously uh, these days there's hundreds upon hundreds of hundreds Dylan scholars who you know interpret his music, read his lyrics, and surprisingly all of them have one conclusion. That is 
you know that is common is that even as a folk artist Dylan was progressive he was like even on his earlier albums he was singing about things that you know no other folk artist was touching on mm-hmm. like he is singing about he's singing about war he's singing about inequality he's like directing his music towards certain people where most folk artists you know are uh afraid to touch like for example his song masters of war it 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 hits subject matter that no other folk artist would have done at that time you know mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it it was so it was so out there it wasn't like you know like most folk songs from that era focused on specific topics where bob dylan made sure his music hit the important matters and that's what makes bob dylan pop to But I think single-handedly when you look at Dylan and then you look at the Birds together, I mean they were really two very big influences in moving folk to folk rock. And then you had other bands, you know, that were coming out in California at that time that were helping to solidify the folk rock sound or just or just move the California sound into into a new area. Like the Mamas and the Papas, you know, who were settling in Cal- in uh Laurel Canyon. I think their song, their 1965 debut album California Dreamin, that album summed up what the rest of the nation essentially was already feeling about the Golden State, except this time it wasn't that cliched California surfing blondes hot rods. It was this new hippie milieu uh that was coming in. Um, you know, this this new hippie milieu of the Sunset Strip and Laurel Canyon. I I've always viewed Mamas and the Papas for one thing of just harmony. Like how many bands do you know have a range of male singers and a range of female singers harmonizing together in unison? Mhm. Not many and and that's I think that's what separated them from everybody else was that harmony they knew how to make it work. Yeah. I mean, they did some great music and to think that they were only together really over 2 years. and everything they did and what they represented to this whole southern california rock scene is incredible what some of these bands were able to do and the marks they were able to leave in just a mere few years i mean it blows my mind like 50 years later we're still talking about them yeah even though they were there for just 2 years yeah no they were there just 2 2 years and you know 65 saw a lot of um you know great bands cropping up uh around southern california and i think that was really the the um the progression into you know the bands that we call sunshine pop so you know you saw the turtles you saw the association they were a big one playing on the sunset strip very la band you saw even like the fifth dimension So it really was an outgrowth of, you know, these these folk rock this folk rock movement um as well that was coexisting at the same time. What I admire about Sunshine Pop is how easy it is to listen to, you know, like from a listener's point of view. And I can't help but notice how the, all of that was influenced by the Beatles. Like when I found out about Sunshine Pop and I found out what, you know, the style of music's about, got to know more about it. And then I heard Rubber Soul I was like is this like I couldn't help but put two and two together you know it's just like in your face it's there it is and I can tell you that as a teenage girl sitting in my room <laughs> right at like 17 16 years old I was and maybe I'm 
I don't know, maybe I'm a weird one, but I was blasting the association. I mean, Never My Love and Cherish. I mean, talk about sappy romantic songs or I was listening to the, you know, the Turtles' Eleanor or whatever it was. I loved that music. And it was sappingly sweet. It was innocent. Um, you know, it was generally very upbeat or romantic or whatever it was. It had this widespread appeal. I mean, here I am listening to it, you know, 30 some years later in my room. But I think it really did peak historically around 1967 and things started to change a little bit again with the sound. And I know in California, quite a bit was happening, Southern California, quite a bit was happening. But I think this is where I think we need to migrate up north in San Francisco. I talked about it in a previous episode a little bit with my guest, Jeff Jampole, but, you know, let's dive in a little bit more because San Francisco, you know, say 1965 or so, things were starting to change up there. Um, it was a hotbed of experimental music. So this experimental music and this um, improvisational sound probably would have had to have started with the jazz scene in the Fillmore District up there. You know, and that was the late 40s and 1950s. You know, in the 1950s was the time of the beat generation. Um, you know, they came out of the North Beach area. So they were into, the, you know, their own style of coffee houses and bars. It was really about expressing yourself. And then there were these early beat poets and writers that we all know or we've all heard of, like Kerouac, Ginsburg, Neil Cassidy. Um, they were really the ones that kind of opened the doors to these jazz clubs, uh, you know, for these, you know, this next generation, so to speak, of these new bohemians coming in. In fact, Allen Ginsberg um, essentially personified the transition between the beat generation and this new hippie generation. So these new hippies that were listening to these guys, to these poets, you know, were in bands like The Grateful Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Jefferson Airplane. Um, and, you know, folk, RB and blues was being introduced to all these bands. Carlos Santana was up there. You know, it was moving them all in a new direction. Not to mention the beat generation they were cynical about life. They were cold. And these new hippies, this new hippie generation, they were all about the expression of joy. It was about living life to the fullest in a very loving and free way. And a lot of these bands that were coming together, you know, the sound, just like Little Canyon, was also very communal. Um, the sound was also very distinct. You know, lots of um, improvisation, like I said, uh, freer and more powerful use of all their instruments. Um, you know, everything that went along uh, with what we consider, consider psychedelic music. And it's funny because when we think of the 60s and we think of the music, we think of that psychedelic sound. We think of hippies. You know, we think of those really kind of acid-touched uh, concert posters all of that originated in San Francisco. I mean, that, that you know, the, the, the quintessential idea of those things. In, 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 other, in, in, in other influence that I think that was so important on the San Francisco sun was the Sunset Strip, where suddenly when the Sunset Strip came along, you know, like I mentioned earlier, people focused 
that now music has to be loud. It has like there has to be an importance of the guitar playing. You know, it's no longer just pop records and pop music. Now I'm gonna like focus on making a pro- like a proper rock record. One hundred percent. You know, I think a, a stronger use of um, electric guitar, keyboards, drums. Um, to really create that sound. And while the two scenes were very Mm -hmm. different and essentially opposed each other, you know, the San Francisco scene did not look favorably upon Los Angeles. There were some cross-pollination happening. I mean, and whenever I think about that, I I think the person that really embodies that cross-pollination is David Crosby. He was jumping all over the place, you know, um, you know, and, and there were some like Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane. He lived down in L.A. and then headed back up to, you know, San Francisco. Um, so there was really this cross pollination of sounds. But it was time at times. Nary shall the two meet. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. In in my past readings, too, what's also really interesting is that if you walked the streets of, say, Haight-Ashbury, say, 1966 or whatever it was, you heard everywhere Rubber Soul. This album That's was correct. making its mark with musicians all along the West Coast, you know, everywhere over the world, but, you know, really all along the West Coast. So that San Francisco psychedelic scene really followed Rubber Soul which was very interesting. Actually, uh, I like to point out that Jefferson Airplane is my favorite band from San Francisco. Incredible. From the 60s overall. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's kind of cliche to call a greatest hit your favorite song by a band, but I'm I'm an unusual person talking about music before my time. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to say White Rabbit is my favorite song by Jefferson Airplane. White Rabbit is an incredible song. And she actually, Grace Lick actually wrote that before she even joined Jefferson Airplane when she was with her previous yeah. band, The Great Society, and, um, and then brought it over when their um, other lead singer left to, uh, to have a baby. Um, and and it, it's, a, yeah. it's an incredible sound. And it's part, it's, it's part of an incredible album. Surrealistic Pillow, to me, is one of the best albums of all time. Of all time. No doubt about it. I I love music that's dark. I hate music, you know, that that's aimed to please an audience. Even though I like I like a lot of songs that aim to please an audience. When I heard that album, my 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 brain was like, "What is this? This is even better than listening to death metal bands." And that comes from a person who is like my my whole all my teenage years was listening to death metal. And heavy metal, and I was like, "This is so much better than that." Where was where was this album when I was when I was a teenager? Well, it makes you feel yeah. something. I, I, you know, I mean, death metal does too. It makes you feel a lot of anger. It makes you feel a lot of anxiety. Um, but this music made you listen to the music, and it made you listen to the lyrics, and so you were feeling something on both spectrums. And I remember, even in high school. I was in track when I wasn't playing volleyball and we would be out, you know, I would do be doing the long jump or whatever it was. And next to me would be um, the guys that were uh, on the high jump team. Mm-hmm. And while we would practice, they would bring out portable radio and they would be playing Jefferson airplane as they were practicing. And well, for what, some what reason, was this? 1995. 
Oh, wait, I said that's when I was born. So (laughs) I just gave away my age. Um, But yeah, it was 1995. So, you know, a good close to 30 years, you know, after this album comes out. It's very amazing for me to uh, find people, you know, who listen to music like 20 years later and be like, oh, this is so cool. Because around me in Dubai, nobody ever does that. Like, everybody's always fascinated with, you know, current music, latest music, or max 10 years back. I've never, I've yet to meet somebody local who's, you know, like, who, who, who like come up to me and be like, you know what? I'm a fan of the Beatles. My favorite Beatles song on Revolver is Gotta Get You Into My Life. Because I, you don't find people here who go that deep and, you know, like say that is my favorite song. I knew you don't find people that go that deep anywhere. You are an anomaly, <laughs> which I absolutely love and I vibe off of. It's incredible. I, I Okay, here, here's, here's a small story. Let me tell you about the album that influenced, you know, uh, everybody always tells me like all your posts on this page are so random. Like one second you're talking about Bruce Springsteen and the next second you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, like say Blind Willie McTell, a Delta Blues player from the 1920s. Like how how is it that you maintain such a big range? And the album that uh, influenced me, like this decision was Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And on that album, he had a song called Song for Bob Dylan. And as I was trying to get to know David Bowie a bit better, I heard that song and I was like, oh, this sounds like a nice one. What's the backstory to this? And when I read the backstory, like a light bulb went on in my brain as like, music is so much more than I realized. It's like, I really don't know anything about music. Like, I, I got to spend more time listening to records, finding the backstory. And as I was, you know, going back and reading about, all these artists, I was like, wait a second, I can talk about this. I find this interesting. And that's how I made my pitch. There you go. So let's also talk about, you know, the movement that was happening up there as well. I mean, you had thousands and thousands and thousands of kids flocking to the height Ashbury. Uh, which was not equipped to handle it, Um, you know, and I think there were some, I mean, not just the scene was happening, there were some really pivotal moments that were drawing these kids in. And, you know, the Summer of Love was one of them. But let's jump back and talk about the prelude to the Summer of Love, which was the celebration. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard this, you know, if you're watching any rock documentary, was the celebration known as the Human Being at Golden Gate Park. And that happened in January 1967. Um, and that essentially, the impetus of that was the ca- the new California law banning the use of LSD um, that came into effect in October of 1966. So this human being was huge. Um, and it cr- encouraged these young teens, anybody under 30, essentially, or 25, for that matter, to question authority. And they really start looking at civil rights and women's rights and consumers' rights. Um, and Timothy Leary was at this being, and that is when he said that famous phrase, turn on, tune in, and drop out. That phrase alone shaped the hippie counterculture. I mean, that encapsulated it right there. So that led into this summer of love. And it was this social phenomenon 
Um, it was the summer of 1967. And the Summer of Love originated with the formation of the Council for the Summer of Love during the spring of 1967. So it essentially, the name came about because the council that formed had called themselves as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. local government officials brought, you know, attention to this phenomenon as they were trying to repress it, as they were trying to stop this influx of teens that were coming in. So the hate Ashbury at that point was just completely overrun. And then obviously when the government officials are getting in, the media is getting involved. So now it's getting this national exposure, global exposure, which is fanning the flames. Flower power. <laughs> Flower power. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there's that famous song. Um, so John Phillips back in L.A., was conceiving this idea of the Monterey Pop Festival, right, with Lou Adler. Um, and that was to be held in June of 1967. So essentially was going to kick off what we know as the Summer of Love. But as a perfect promotion, he wrote the song San Francisco. And it was sung by Scott McKenzie, a friend of his. And essentially that mm-hmm. came out in May of 1967, which, again, continued to fan those flames, continued to fan those flames with the Monterey Pop Festival. How the way I see the whole summer of love and this whole hippie movement, it's like one of the first underground movements to get mainstream attention. It's like where you have these group of rebels who like, we don't care about your rules. We just want to get high. We just want to take drugs. And what came out of it was great music, great, great music. But at the end of it, I sort of see it as the birth of not not the birth in the way but like the importance of counterculture in you know in not not just music history modern history where you know everybody like anytime anyone talks about the 1960s they're bound to say the word beatles in it they're bound they're bound to say hippies in it and it just goes to show how important the hippie movement was in showing people the importance of counterculture and someone from my generation, like I'm what 25 right now, like people were 25 when they were experiencing all this and they would be, you know, like to show me how important it is for me to have a voice and for me to say, okay, you know what? My values matter. And like, you're getting all that power because someone in the past decided to stand up to authority. So yeah, so the entire the entire hippie movement was like just this one massive thing saying, we're not going to stand for your rules, we're not going to stand for your regulations, we just want to get high and that's, you know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing at all. And yeah, and it just shows people like decades later how important it was to stand up for yourself. Right. And I think, you know, there was a thread of that, too, obviously, in the Los Angeles sound. And they all came together beautifully, um, you know, at Monterey Pop. And it wasn't just Northern California and Southern California. Obviously, there were bands from the UK there and, you know, um, India and uh, and whatnot. But it was a beautiful blending, it, it, even though it, there was some tension between the two scenes. It was a beautiful blending and a culmination and a kickoff to what this summer of love was going to be about. You know, but by the end of the summer, this phenomenon had had died. You know, most people had left uh, San Francisco and they were going back to real life, going back to get a job, going back to their family or going back to resume studies, whatever it was. Um, 
And actually, it was funny because I remember seeing this in some sort of old footage when I was a kid, the mock funeral that was held called the Death of the Hippie, that ceremony that they held in October of 1967, which ironically was just a year after this law banning LSD. Um, and I remember looking at this going, Death of the Hippie? You know, because you think, God, that whole idea of the hippie, I mean, wasn't it alive and well in Woodstock and all of that? But what it was, was really the death of that, that movement of that summer. So meanwhile, let's jump back uh, to Southern California and what all is happening post-Birds post-folk, you know, the the onset of uh, folk rock. You've got quite a bit happening on the Sunset Strip. You've got quite a bit happening in Laurel Canyon. This should be around, I say, mid nineteen, mid to late 1965, early 1966, where uh, music has changed from, say, pop singles back to uh, trying to create music of substance and value where uh, people are on a mission, you know, they're saying we're gonna we're gonna bring the rock and roll back, but we're gonna do it differently this time. And my my favorite of them all is Buffalo Springfield, mm-hmm. who suddenly had this loud amplified sound that was unlike anything I had heard at that point. You know, based from say 1961 to 1965 of the what what was the California sound, and then suddenly for someone like Neil Young to come down from Canada and completely change their understanding of what rock and roll should be. And the my favorite Buffalo Springfield song is Mr. Soul and that amplified guitar line where he's suddenly singing over a riff. Here, here's another thing that I sort of noticed was, you know, uh, adds value to their credibility in the Sunset Strip bands was that Years later, we take rock music as its conventional form, like guitar, bass, drums, and, you know, uh, guitar riffs and guitar melodies and guitar solos. I sort of see Buffalo Springfield as one of the first as emphasizing that point where, you know, there's a melody and we're going to we're going to add riffs on top of it. We're going to add we're going to amplify it with Fender amps and, you know, just Mm -hmm. like this loud amplified sound. Sure, there may have been rock bands already doing that, but I think Buffalo Springfield were the first to like bring that element to the mainstream, you know, as early as their first ever concert. I think they were doing something that was dramatically different than everybody else. And they should have value as, I mean, they should have credibility as, you know, like one of the, one of the most important rock bands in the overall California sound. 100%. And again, they're another band that only lasted about two years. And I think something about that sound too was really the dueling guitars that went on between Stephen Stills and Neil Young. I mean, those two were pushing each other incredibly hard to be better musicians, to outdo each other. Definitely a clashing of the egos on stage. Um, But that came out in the music. Um, It was very progressive. Uh, When you look at their body of work, what they only put out three albums, right? And the first one was quite cohesive. Um, the Buffalo Springfield was v- uh, more of a cohesive piece, even though not everybody got equal 
you know, playing time, so to speak. Um, but the second one was very disjointed. They were going off in separate directions. And it, it was almost like a number of melodies that kind of came together in a not so cohesive way. Still, still a seminal album, an incredible album, Buffalo Springfield again, an incredible album. And then you had, you know, uh, their third one, which was uh, Last Time Around. So in the, I shouldn't say that there was also Buffalo Springfield res, uh, retrospective that came out later, um, but they weren't even together when Last Time Around, you know, was put out. So it was about the two, the two musicians that were really pushing each other to be better. And I think what also makes them such an incredible band is the amount of talent and um, other bands that were created as a result of Buffalo Springfield. But what I think we need to highlight here is, you know, when their first single was put out, which was nowadays Clancy Can't Even Sing, it had moderate success, right? So that album came out. And when that album came out, they were in the process of recording for what it's worth. 1966, for what it's worth. And obviously, for what it's worth was the response to the Sunset Strip riots. You know, the city and residents were trying to curtail the crowds and the traffic and the drugs and everything that was happening on the Sunset Strip. So they passed a 10 p.m. curfew. And the young local rock music fans felt that their civil rights were being infringed upon. So for weeks, there was tension and there were protests and they swelled and they finally culminated November 12th at Pandora's Box. During that time, Stephen Stills had driven through, you know, that intersection uh, where Pandora's Box was, which was Crescent and Sunset, and saw these kids protesting and wrote for what it's worth. So that came out, and I think that gave them global status. Whereas, you know, Leary's uh, turn on, tune in, drop out was happening up north, for what it's worth was happening down here. For what it's worth, to me, is a folk song that has this down-to-earth, back-to-roots feel, where, you know, if you go back to the early folk songs of um, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, where they're suddenly they're they're suddenly telling people like there's problems going on. Open your eyes. If you're still unable to pay attention, here's me singing about it. You know, like Woody Guthrie saying, "This land is your land." Like for what it's worth, has that same back to basics folk aesthetic, where. Like if you listen to Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land, he's trying to tell people about the problems around them. He's trying to tell them, you know, like this is happening, pay attention to it. And if you still don't, if you're still not able to get it, here's me singing about it. So fast forward a couple of decades later, you have still you have Stephen Stills, who's, you know, talking about it in a song like For What It's Worth. Like in my opinion, the opening line, there's something happening here in itself is such an important and you know, like it has proper value to it. You know, like what's happening here and it opens your mind to new possibilities. Yeah, it, it's an incredible song. It still resonates, unfortunately, today. That's what they do. The best songs of all time, they, they'll outlive all of us.
And, you know, it was important to touch on Buffalo Springfield, just as it was important to touch on the birds, because the two bands together, like I said, the offshoot of bands that came from those two L.A., quintessential L.A. groups, even though, (laughs) you know, Buffalo Springfield had two kids from Canada, but they came together and they crafted that sound that was coming out of this city, that was coming out of Los Angeles. And when you look at the birds, you know, you've got Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You've got Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young that came out of there. You've got the Flying Burrito Brothers that came out of there. And you look at uh, Buffalo Springfield, and you think of everything that came out of there, aside from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You had Poco. You had Loggins and Messina. You had Souther Hillman Fure Band. Um, I mean, so many different bands that came out of those two and crafted what was going to be the next generation, essentially, of the California sound. And that skewed, you know, was not only folk rock, but also, you know, country rock. This is where essentially we jump into what was transpiring and what was taking place. And and let's take a step back and really look at what was happening in history when you're getting like 1969. This hippie movement, um, this, this, like we talked about, this expression of joy was tempered. Unfortunately, at, at this point, you know, you have the assassination of Robert Kennedy. You have the assassination of, uh, you know, King. And then unfortunately, days before Woodstock, you have the Manson murders, right? Which took place in the beginning of August of 1969. Woodstock happens. And then three, four months later, you have uh, the free uh, Rolling Stones concert, Altamont, where someone was killed by Hell's Angels. So how the public regarded hippies at that point completely changed. And the sound started to change a little bit at the same time in Los Angeles. And when you have folks converging on, you know, the Ash Grove, you have folks converging on the Troubadour, and there's a little bit of a country twang to them. They're all unsigned. They're the next, you know, generation coming out. The sound started changing. So you had Jackson Brown intermingling with Bonnie Raitt, intermingling with Linda Ronstadt, who'd already had some success with the Stone Ponies. You know, then you've got uh, Don Henley, you know, of Shiloh at the time. And you've got Glenn Fry with Long Branch Penny Whistle, um, you know, the, the duo he was in with J.D. Southers. So things were starting to happen, but it was a new breed coming in. Essentially, the 70s classic rock sound that I feel which came out of California was all like, I'm, like in my mind, I'm thinking about the Eagles and the Doobie Brothers, for example. Doobie Brothers and, up north, yeah. Yeah, what I'm, what I feel I'm, what I feel I'm listening to, is essentially that raw rock sound that the bands on the Sunset Strip were making, but they're taking it up a notch where they're now focusing on moving out of conventional rock and trying to add something new to it, you know? Like, like it's still rock, but there's more to it now than what the 60s had explored. Right. And that's that's where and that's where all these other genres started coming into play, you know, like hard rock, soft rock, progressive rock. It was taking what was raw about rock and roll 
but adding stuff to it that the 60s didn't touch upon that much yes in the early 60s in LA i think what was becoming very pervasive was that country rock sound um mm-hmm. and you know it was brought out with people like you know Graham Parsons um and and the Eagles and i have to say what really defined the sound of like 1970 on say to about 1975 in Los Angeles David Geffen and Elliot Roberts under Asylum Records and then the Eagles mm-hmm. they together <laughs> were powerhouses in really redefining what that sound looked like. I mean, look, Crosby Stills Nash and Young at that time, they were literally the biggest band in America. I mean, they were our answer to the Beatles at that time. But when you've got Linda Ronstadt, you know, and and all her backing band coming together to craft the Eagles, Glenn Frey, um Bernie Ledden, and then uh Don Henley, and then you've got his, you know, their their friend, you know, J.D. Souther, who's writing songs. You've got Jackson Brown, who wrote songs. Um, all of them together, this was this was the new era being ushered in. And it was just as communal, just as communal. You know, and then you had the other folks that were still there making great records. James Taylor. You had Joni Mitchell. For me, yeah, for me, the 70s rock sound is Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Those early records that he made were, oh, there was something else altogether. Yeah, and that live album Neil Young at the Fillmore, oh boy, I was not ready for that album when I heard it. It mm-hmm. was so powerful, it was so raw, and what he was touching upon, I think, is like it, for me that is the '70s sound. I don't think about any other bands. I think about Neil Young and Crazy Horse when I think about the '70s. I think overall, when the history books look mm. back, Neil Young is, uh, I will never discount what he's done. I mean, incredible. Neil Young and Crazy Horse, incredible music. But when you look back um, at this Southern California scene, which was a bunch of misfits, singer-songwriters that were not from California coming together, mm-hmm. they're thinking of the next generation of that Laurel Canyon sound and they're thinking of what the Eagles created. And that was all beautifully encapsulated with their album in the mid seventies, Hotel California. And at that point, it was about excess, truly about excess. Uh, and it was out there in your face, even though the, the previous generation, like the mamas and papas, you know, who were hippies and anti-establishment living in Bel Air with their five Rolls Royces, you know, but it wasn't as overt. With the music that was coming out now, it was very overt. It was a fast, drug-fueled lifestyle of excess. As much as people hate it, hate to admit it, that album is something unique. The songwriting on that album is phenomenal. Like it has structure to it. It has basically everything that was great about '70s rock is in that album. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. guitar solos, hooks. Uh, melodies, harmonies, everything mm-hmm. is in that one album. What really propelled them forward was, you know, obviously that first album where Take It Easy is like, the music doesn't get better than that with Take It Easy, but that was on their first yeah. album. And that mm-hmm. has continued to be one of their biggest, if not their biggest hits. You know, and then the second album, Desperado, 
it had moderate success. Actually, ironically, um, the song Desperado wasn't that big of a hit until Linda Ronstadt essentially re-recorded it. And she propelled that album into uh, super status. You know, they were going to be in that sophomoric slump. But from there, the train kept rolling. You know, so yeah. that's the magic that we see coming out of Los Angeles from about, you know, 71 to 75. Um, or even a little before that, too. That's the next generation, you know. And so when you look at, you know, California on the whole and the music scene, the rock scene of what was transpiring, really, if you think about it, if you want to include the surf culture from about 61 to 75, it's unmatched. It's unmatched. And I loved it because when I was watching that Laurel Canyon, actually, uh, that Laurel Canyon epics documentary recently, <laughs> David Crosby summed it all up. He said, there are moments in history where there are peaks and nobody really knows why. Paris in the 30s, the Renaissance in Italy, and Los Angeles around 1965 to 1975. It's very hard to define, but the proof is in the pudding. The music's there. And just hearing that, you know, it gives you goosebumps because it's true. Something, something transpired here that was magical, and it's no longer. And I don't know if it will ever happen again. The industry has changed. Music has changed. We have changed. What happened in the 60s and 70s changed everything. And we're still talking about it because it's relevant it's important and it will continue to be. I feel like these records are going to outlive all of us. Like a hundred years from now, there's still going to be someone saying, oh, the Eagles, they were nice. Any other band from the 60s would be like, this was something important. Like, why wasn't I there at that period to experience all this? Mm -hmm. Music is evergreen. Music evokes a feeling. And people constantly want to feel. They want to find a way to emote. And I have no doubt that the music out of this time will live on in perpetuity. Thanks for listening, guys, and a big thank you to Anuj Rajkumar. If you're not on Instagram, I suggest you hop on and take a look at his page, The Legends of Music. He deep dives into music of all genres and decades. And of course, if you're on there, make sure you're following LA Woman Rocks as well. <laughs> Thanks again, and we'll see you at the next one.